Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. And Linkshus, the place where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Samir. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm well, just recovering from a flu. So, how are you? I am doing uh, good, probably going into a flu. By the way, I have gotten my Apple Watch with the Milanis Loop. Oh, nice. This is the second one you guys have, right? Yes, this is the second one. And you the 42 mm one. That's right. That, that time when we met in London? Yeah, that, that was the 38 mm That's right. Now it's 42 mm Coming back, I'm going to still introduce you. We are talking to Samir Singh, currently working for App Annie, also writing for techtalks.net. We want to talk about post-Google I.O. and post-Apple WWDC. So who should we start first? I think I'm going to start with Google. I think there's a longer list of things to run, to run through. Yes, so there's um, something like a two and a half hours of keynote. I mean, there are a couple of things that came out. I know you write a couple of articles. You've been a little bit productive this month. So you write one about <laughs> the Google Now on Tap. That's one of yeah. the new things that came out. There was also yeah. Brillio. It's kind yeah. of the Internet of Things SDK, developed mm-hmm. by the Android team, if I'm not wrong, right? Yes. Then there is the Jackard, which is software is eating your clothes. That's actually developed by a separate team. And also we get a pretty good glimpse of Apple and Google's strategy diverging. So Google's strategy is cloud is the strategy and Android is static. So maybe we start from Google now on tap. So what are your thoughts actually after this Google I.O. 2015? I actually thought now on tap was the biggest announcement of the year potentially the biggest announcement of the last couple of years because I think it can dramatically reshape the app interaction model as we know it today. So broadly what it does is whenever you're in an app, it just scans the con- content of the app, whether it's a conversation with a friend or, or anything else, you tap, double tap the home button and it brings up apps that are, that are relevant to that particular context. So it scans the, the text uh, of the app and figures out what parts are important and allows you to take action to that immediately. So it, it gives you a, a list of about four apps. And this kind of suggests to me that it, we're kind of going into a post-page page rank era for apps now. So on the web, on the, in the pre-page rank era, search engines were basically different categories of websites. Mm. And you could search through them based on a keyword, which is kind of what you do on app stores now. There's list, different listings of apps in various categories and you search for through their descriptions or their names with the, with the keyword. Mm. But it's kind of uh, leveraging on Google's machine learning capability, right? I mean, they're actually doing contextual search and helping the user to be able to get to actions like, for example, if you and I are talking about some movies, you will basically pop up a movie app and you can book the tickets immediately. Exactly. So it gives them, it not only pushes contextual search, but it also gives them real estate to place an ad and the odds of clicking on that ad are even higher. And this kind of makes sense considering the news that came out just this week, I think, which is Google acquired Agavi, which was a startup that did app streaming. Let's look at these Google Now cards, right? There's about four apps in them. Maybe you put an ad in there for another app. Hmm. And right now, if you click on that, you're taken to the Google Play page if you don't have the app and you have to install the app to use it. If you have the app already, it's deep linked to the relevant section inside the app. But let's say Agavi is rolled out along with Now on Tap, which means if I tap on an ad, I go straight into the app directly, whether I have the app or not, which means conversion rate goes through the roof, which means if Google starts a bidding system based on user context, their CPCs are going to be sky high. Right. So you're thinking that there might be, instead of now people bidding for ad space, people are now bidding for 
the context popping up within the mobile phone itself. Yeah, right now when you look at the AdWords bidding model, it advertises bid for keywords. So there's certain words that are more generic that that are in high demand, so it's really difficult to. And so the bid for that particular keyword will be really high. If there's less demand for a keyword, the bid for that keyword will be very low. Right now, you might start bidding for situations like users searching for movies that are in this location, or users. that have just landed in an airport in San Francisco and are looking for a cab. This is interesting because it's kind of related to what Benedict Evans talk about the shifting layers of interaction. Yes. I mean, if you look at WeChat, they use corporate pages to push to get kind of very sky high cost per actions with the uh-huh. way of getting users to book to make transactions to buy a yeah. chicken or etc. But in yeah. the case of I think Google is actually innovating on another interaction layer within the app itself using now and then. Yeah, I think what they're doing right now is they're completely taking the smartphone home screen out of the equation. So they're trying to form a connective tissue between every app. So you you're in a conversation with a friend of yours with on on one particular app, let be WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, whatever it is. After that, you want to take an action based on whatever that conversation was based on. Mm. So what you would do is go back to the home screen, go into your app page, launch that particular app, and find out what you want to do in that. So it completely takes out those steps in the middle. You just go from A to B. Right, and so you also becomes a problem for the other apps like Facebook, WeChat, because they also create their own layers as well. But actually, Google can actually sieve into these layers too. Yeah, it seems it seems like there Google's already got Android at the bottom, right? So that's the base layer. Mm. You've got apps built on top of that. And messaging apps are trying to build one layer on top of the apps. And what now on tap kind of does is build maybe not a layer on top. It it builds a a connective tissue that goes through all of these apps. Maybe that's what I would, that's the best way to describe it for me. Right, and so it's more intrinsic because it's hard for any of whether Facebook or WeChat to try to build on top of it. So they basically still have to allow Google to control their app one way or another. Using this content, yeah, yeah. Facebook and WeChat are building platforms, mm. but a user has access to those platforms only when they're in a Facebook app or in a WeChat app. Mm. Correct? They have portfolios of apps, so there's multiple apps that do that. But they, but a user still needs to be in one of those apps. Mm. With Google now on tap, because it's integrated into your phone. I mean, the the disadvantage is that it requires Android M, so it's going to require a few years to diffuse through the ecosystem. But it has access to pretty much any app out there. So does it make sense to merge Android and Chrome? Then I mean, this also can be gone into the web-based mode too, right? At this point, I don't think it makes sense anymore because when you see what Now on Tap does right now, it houses only apps, and you know, in a few years later, potentially apps that will be streamed to the device. Mm. But there is there's not there's nothing stopping Google from putting the an icon for a web page as long as it's relevant to the context within the Now on Tap card, right? So at at the end of the day, Now on Tap actually does accomplish merging the app. And web-based interaction models, anyway. No one seems to get a sense of why Google is still keeping Android and Chrome together separately for mobile and desktops. Is it so, more uh, just because there's a single product manager and they think that you know it's better to keep each one for each screen, or is it just because they are just two different philosophies that at some point they may actually reconcile it together? I think it's a bit of I don't I I don't know about the product manager angle. That could obviously be the case, but. Mm. I think it's a problem with input paradigms. I don't think Google has figured out how input would work in a more productivity-oriented environment, and I think that I think that's why Chrome's been pushed to the education sector because it's not functional enough right now to attack the enterprise really. Yeah. So education is pretty much the lower rung of productivity. Okay, so I'm of the camp that Google's been getting a bit lackluster in the last half a year, but I think from Google now on tap, you seem to think 
the contrary we've seen this in the in the media a little bit as well a couple of people that were pushing the peak google narrative kind of cooled their heels a little bit when they saw this i i think that that cycle is is natural i mean this is what happens this is what happened with facebook when when they went for an ipo right mm-hmm. and i think when you don't understand the business model behind it you kind of fall into these traps because when a company is working on a product that doesn't generate revenue it, it's only natural to think that we're going to that, that they're kind of losing focus and that this product is not going to help them generate revenue on, on the new platform so when you look at facebook what happened was facebook launched their app on mobile but they didn't really find a way to generate revenue from it and this was around the time that the ipoed and pretty much all the pundits and and analysts basically said you know facebook is has peak they don't they haven't figured out mobile so this is so we're negative on facebook so peak facebook if you will mm-hmm. then what happened facebook started investing in building a, a platform so to speak they invested in facebook login and everyone just ignored that and what happened was because of the investments in facebook login because app developers started using that they started collecting app usage data which helped them target the app install ads that were that were in development but it would have been impossible to make app install ads an effective ad unit had they not had app usage data which means had they not had facebook login there would be no app install ad. nobody really thinks through that so right now when you look at google they need a new advertising model so to speak not just adwords correct correct and because of that they need a new real estate they need a new bidding model they need new kinds of data to use to 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 feed their targeting model now they've already been collecting data to, through android if they had no android they would have no mobile data to speak of because they have access to the operating system they have options to build quote unquote ad real estate which is what happened with now on tap and an ad- advertising bidding model is honestly not that difficult to implement as long as you have all the all the other assets into place that's the only missing asset right now mm. but if you hadn't thought through these assets and how they link to google's monetization model you would obviously fall into the trap of thinking that google has peaked and that's what happened and so also that will also reduce their dependency on android as well so it really doesn't matter whether you have cyanogen or another operating system that you know they can basically just let the oems do what they want with android because they already well, have that the middle layer on that well not necessarily so this is google now on tap is basically part of core google services but it's integrated into android m once you get into open source android my guess is that oems will be able to tinker with it and remove the google focused elements so in fact android becomes more important in my in my mind oh so it becomes because it's now integrated deeper so android becomes much more important but yes, then they also have google's variant of android but then they are still going to have the same issues with the oems not being loyal to them and also having cyanogen waiting on the site or maybe even the miui or a uh, Micromax. Uh, when you look at situation. when you look at the market share of the non Google flavor of Android, mm. it's basically localized to China. Uh, that doesn't exist outside China. So I'm not sure that's uh, that's a problem anyone's worried about. Cyanogen is interesting, but I'm not sure that's going to go that well. Mm. The last phone that was launched without last Android phone that was launched launched without Google services in an emerging market was the Nokia X. What I've heard and were and what I what I've read from IDC as well is that that phone did not sell well. So then, what about Android One? I mean, there was no mention of it in this Google I/O. Yep, I think as of now, Android One is a failure, and I think the the reasons to me are pretty clear cut. Is that Google's vision was that they would empower "quote unquote" challenger OEMs with Android One so that they can uh, fight with market leaders, right? So unfortunately what they did is they did go after local OEMs but they went after local OEMs that were already dominant in their home markets and so that's Micromax in India now Micromax has already achieved a level of success vis-a-vis Samsung 
where they don't need an android one to really push their push their brand forward what they should have done is maybe go after the tier 2 oems in regional markets guys like intex and cellcon in india maybe others in in southeast asia and help those oems challenge micromax because those oems have very weak brands right now and android one itself would become their brand and that's why because those guys need a hero device to drive sales that's where android one could have worked but going after the lead oems in each market that's what didn't work i think i think that was the problem but they don't have a choice right typically they also want to make it successful so they want to go with the lead oem right not necessarily because a lead oem is not going to have as much incentive to push android one because a the focus there isn't on their brand the focus is on the android one brand mm. two a micromax android one phone is exactly the same as a carbon android one phone so there's not that much scope for them to quote unquote differentiate as well i'm not a huge fan of that word because it's thrown around a little too easily <laughs> but yes i think it's it's relevant you know it's kind of remind me of the analogy that of what happened to apple in japan because i think when the iphone got into japan they partnered with softbank which is kind of the number 3 number 4 and now they are the largest and it forces ntd docomo and kddr to eventually adopt the iphone uh-huh. so i think that's so it's kind of analogous in the sense that instead of what yeah. you're saying here is that instead of trying to target the number 1 guy you target the number 2 yeah. and the number 3 guys and yeah. because you have a superior product subsequently everyone will move towards to get the number 1 guy to bend to your will yeah and maybe not as far uh, as saying that it would become the dominant product in the market but the volumes would be sufficient for larger oems to consider adopting that in at least at least as a counter then what about prelio for the think, internet of things then i think it's very very early but the way i see this is google sees iot as a data platform and, and i think that there is some research out there that says the same thing primarily mm. from vision mobile where because iot isn't going to be something that that comes with a quote unquote screen right so that, that you can look at and play around with so broadly what it's doing is it's making your life more convenient by building database services to make make it more predictive prescriptive etc etc so what google sees is that if there is a database platform they need to have an operating system there much like what android did for them on mobile they need to have an operating system there that gives them options to figure out what to do in the future and i think that's what brillio is about right but brillio is an extension by the android team right yes yeah, so it's it's broadly a stripped down version of android still not entirely sure i don't think google went into too much depth about eventual use cases i think they were just talking about the software stack mm. but uh, it's going to be interesting broadly google feels that they need to be there anytime data is involved is is a bit confusing because they also have android wear which is actually now i think is only for smart watches basically i, I this wouldn't is more the data layer on that yeah. You, yeah, yeah that's the problem with announcing too many os now you see because yeah. to me it was kind of a database layer but then yeah. it's kind of there's also android wear as well yeah android wear to me is more because wearables still have screens i think they're, they they just felt that they need to have something there I'm not very bullish on the prospects of Android Wear or wearables as a whole, because I I don't get the sense of why they why a screen is even required there. How about the Jack One? That is interesting. I mean, that goes to the very core of Google, right? They want to make sure that everything we do has a data collection layer, and if you're interacting with it, there will be a data collection layer. The interesting part about this is that this is actually from the ATAP division, which was the division Google retained when they sold Motorola. So they actually have three different divisions working on various kinds of tech one is obviously the android division one is motorola's atap and one is google x 
I think what Google's philosophy of uh, innovation is that the quote-unquote thousand let the, let a thousand flowers bloom approach, which is let various groups come up with various ideas and we'll filter through them and figure out which one which one makes more sense. I think someone from Tech Pinions compared it to they compared Google X to Xerox Park, which is I think a decent uh, decent comparison. Are you sure? I actually disagree with that comparison. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I see it's more closer to Bell Labs than to Xerox Park. In what way? Because they are doing some of these innovations that are kind of actually kind of groundbreaking and they also try to push it towards commercializing and go to market as well. I mean, Bell Labs, I mean, they pioneered a lot of innovations. They also have some of those actually that goes into telecommunications and become part of that technology. I don't okay, see, that's, yeah, so, so whereas, well, whereas Xerox Park, to me, is most of their innovations actually stayed in there, but it never got out. I mean, well, you can I mean, say Xerox grass Park is a failure, right? But, you know, yeah. and it went Park out, right? It's a lot of their innovation. So the, the way I see it is Google has an opportunity to license a lot of these innovations as well. I think self-driving cars are eventually going to be there. I don't think Google's going to build a self-driving well, car. They are I think the person to... I, Actually, license that off is already doing their own version of self-driving cars. So, you know, Uber is probably one, Lyft maybe the other to, to do the self-driving cars piece, right? To me, I find the comparison is actually closer to Bell Labs than to, to Xerox Park. Yeah, I, I get your point. There's definitely something there. But then, then from, from your view, what do you think of Google from the Google I.O. as a whole? Now that people are now talking that Android... Android is the tactic and cloud is the strategy. Do you actually agree with that? On the face of it, no, I don't agree with it. I think Android has become the strategy more and I think now on tap is the prime example of that. Okay. That it, it wouldn't exist without Android being there. So cloud is the tactic uh, from your view? No, I, I don't think... I, I think cloud is the end game. I wouldn't call it the strategy. And Android is the way to implement that. So it's not anything short term. Mm. It's a, definitely a core part of their strategy. Uh, let's put it this way. Android is the means, cloud is the end. I think I, pre- I prefer it that way. And actually what I, I, I it, what it seems to kind of not giving me a good sense of it is that they're actually focusing a lot on machine learning and nobody's actually looking into that. I, I think that that's pretty much the the core of what Google is, they at the heart of it, they are a machine learning company. Pretty much every, and I think that's why they they haven't been very successful successful in social, and that's why they're pulling back from there as well, because understanding human interactions at that level requires something requires probably more social knowledge. I don't, I don't know how to put that better. Building other kinds of products, primarily products that are transactional, where you get in to get in and get out, where you want information quickly. I think those kinds of products are where Google really excels and those are really built on machine learning. And that's why uh, that's why I never agreed with all of these pundits that said that Google needs to focus on a social, Google needs to build a platform where they generate sustained engagement. That's not Google's strength and they know, and, and they know that. I think Google Plus was uh, was a failure because, it, I'd say failure because it, it didn't go anywhere and Google itself is stripping it down right now. Mm. But because it didn't really go to the core of what Google was, Google Plus is supposed to be, the stream in particular is supposed to be where users spend time. It's not, Google Plus is not something transactional that does the job for you. And that's what Google excels at building. Do you think that that is the reason why Google has been not shown to be doing many things lately? Because it's trying to kind of reorganize itself and get back to what it's good at rather than basically focus on attacking everyone on every front? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable explanation. Especially this Google I.O. I think had a lot of focus on ML related products. You know, when you look at the Photos app, Google Now on Tap and, and all the other initiatives that they're working on. I think the focus was very, very clear. Except I think the only sticking point in this year's I.O. was Google Wear, which didn't make any sense to me. 
I'm sorry, Android Wear. But I think everything else was was very, very focused. Mm. And that's a good segue because we talk about machine learning from the Google's perspective. I want to now move to Apple's version of <laughs> machine learning, which is the proactive. And that's, that leads us to WWDC 2015. I mean, well, they announced three OSs, Mac OS, iOS, Watch OS, and then iPad multitasking and proactive. I mean, I'll start with the proactive first. So, I mean, before that, there was a debate on privacy between Tim Cook and the rest of the pundits. So yeah. what is your perspective on that then? I think Apple's marketing team is driving product development in this case. So what's happened, I think, in my mind is that Apple realizes Google is a machine learning company. In a, in a head-on battle with Google in machine learning, they, they, they find themselves at a disadvantage. So the one angle they found was privacy. It seems like that's what they're trying to push because in my mind, they've handicapped their own product by pushing privacy so much because if you can't share data between other Apple services, putting up contextually relevant information becomes more difficult. And that's basically what the service is. If you're going to tell me what I need at that very point, you need to have data on what I'm interested in and what I'm doing across the across all of my different Apple devices and across all of my different Apple services. And that's what they're not doing. And it's a little puzzling to me because let's be honest, privacy seems like one of those topics that the media loves talking about, but users care about for probably a day or two before they forget about, because if privacy was important, there would be no iCloud users today. (laughs) I mean, I mean, it's a bit disingenuous. There is a layer that actually understands you. Just imagine how many Siri voice commands you pull out. They're actually learning about you from that point. A little bit, yes, but the, it does seem a little, based on what they announced, it does seem slightly siloed off from what you're doing in, say, your, your email, what you're uploading to iCloud, etc., etc. So it, it still seems somewhat handicapped. And I think Apple, in terms of machine learning, is already behind Google, and they're, they're kind of putting themselves even further behind. They can still run on their hardware strategy, right? And make sure that they just have a stable OS, and because Google will still put their apps on iOS platform as yeah. well. Uh, yes, but Google Now and Tap cannot work on iOS because it needs to be integrated at the, at the OS layer. And I think that's where you see why Android becomes important for Google is because Now and Tap is definitely going to be a core part of their monetization strategy going forward and it's not going to work on iOS. Right. And so that would actually be difficult for iOS moving forward. But that will also give an opening to kind of WeChat and Facebook basically who are building platform on top of that then. Yeah, that, that's an... That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. T- tell me, what, what, what do you think in Apple WDC you liked? iPad multitasking. Oh, what I is think that? that <laughs> by far, I think that was the biggest news of WWDC in my mind. I, I think what's happened over, I mean, I, I've been writing about this for a year and a half now. I've been calling for an iPad Pro and at that point I was criticized because Pandit said Apple doesn't need an iPad Pro. So what's happened is the bottom of the iPad market or the tablet market is being eaten up by two different things. One, very, very low-end use cases, like, you know, just watching media is being eaten up by very cheap Android tablets because they've become good enough for that. Light computing, web browsing are being eaten up by tablets. People already have tablets. They have no reason to go out and buy a new iPad. Now, analysts say that iPad sales are slowing down because the replacement cycle for iPads is really long. But why is replacement cycle really long? Nobody's delved into that. It's not just because the iPad has, has, has long life, right? The iPad's Useful life is about as long as an iPhone's useful life. It's just that you use your iPhone or you use your, your larger smartphone a lot more than you use your iPad. Therefore, replacing the iPad is not 
is not has not become really that important. Therefore, what the iPad needs to do is move up market to higher end use cases. And the only thing that's left is enterprise use cases. So you need to be more geared towards productivity. And that's something that Apple has ignored up until now. Mm. I mean, they've partnered with IBM to build enterprise apps, but there's been nothing at the operating system layer. There's been nothing at the hardware layer that could really push that. And I think what this uh, update tells me is that it's uh, it appears like Apple is building an iPad variant that could cater to the enterprise. It, right. it, it okay. seems like that. That also fits into the narrative that I mean, in Asia, uh, particularly, a lot of enterprises actually now becoming warming up to the Surface Pro rather yep. than the Android tablets yep. because the Android yep. tablets, for some reason, the battery yeah, life they're not gonna, have a lot of problems. Gonna, yeah, they're not yeah, built for for, yeah. for enterprise usage. So yeah. basically, it, it, it kind of gave me that sense that the iPad multitasking was actually geared towards against Microsoft rather than towards Google. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I would take a step forward... I wouldn't say just against Microsoft, but against PCs in general. I think broadly what they want to do is slowly start eating up PC use cases in the enterprise. It's gonna, it's not going to be all at once. It's going to be a step-by-step process, but it, it, it will add something to the sales, right? And I think that's what they really need because the iPad is really slowing down right now. But then it also helps them with their partnership with IBM, right? Because if you think about yep. it, IBM is actually now moving very, very aggressively to go out and promote iOS enterprise apps. Yeah, and it, it really does. And I think it gives them an opportunity to build more capable apps as well. Because right now, purely with the touch inter- interaction model, there's a, if Apple is working on an iPad, say, with a, with a detachable keyboard, there's a different kind of a category of app you can make for that, correct? Mm. And it kind of opens up, opens up new possibilities that didn't exist before. Of the three OSs, I mean, which, which one do you have the most interesting development, you think? Is it the Mac OS X? Is it the iOS? Or is it the Watch OS? That's a tough question. And... It's because of this. OS X, I think, right now is a mature product. It doesn't really matter what features they add. I mean, only power users are going to care about that. Mm. People are using a, people are going to be who are using a Mac OS are going to be using it irrespective of those features. iOS is getting into a, a kind of steady state. If we take iPad multitasking out of the equation and proactive out of the equation, those two things we already discussed about. Mm. Beyond that, iOS is still a fairly steady product, right? Now, watchOS is interesting because it's a new product. And the most interesting part to me was why... I mean, the watch was launched two months ago. You have an SDK coming out coming out right now. Why couldn't they just hold off the launch until the SDK was out? What was, why was WatchKit really necessary? I mean, it's, it's a temporary scenario, but it's, it's a little puzzling. Do you think that they wanted to rush out the watch first and then put the OS in? I, I'm thinking of various options and that seems like one potential option. I'm not sure why they wanted to rush to, uh, rush to watch out. If they wanted to rush to watch out, there's something they were concerned about. I'm not sure what that something was. I wanted to now ask you the question because I know you already have the numbers for this. So what happens to Apple Watch in terms of the sales? I think it's much more than, I think two times more than what the overall including wearables from Pebble and Android combined, right? Yes. And I don't remember in our last discussion, this is what I said. I was questioning whether there was a smartwatch market, but it appeared as though it definitely is a market for a new Apple product. What I wanted to know is, is there a long-term market for an Apple Watch? And... Right now, we don't have any sales figures, but there are some third-party estimates. There's one company called Slice Intelligence that reads email receipts to, to estimate Apple Watch orders. That's the only no- and that's only for the US. That's the only number we have right now. But mm. the numbers are somewhat interesting. So what the numbers say is, one and a half million watches were ordered the week pre-order started, which was sometime in April, mid, uh, uh, let's say mid-April. From, from then to midway, mid-May, 
an additional 1 million watches were ordered. From mid-May to mid-June, an additional 290k watches were ordered. It clearly seems like a lot of early adopters and you know Apple loyalists were waiting until the watch was announced. They bought their watch, and then since then sales have slowed down. Of course, this this is assuming the data is accurate, which we definitely don't know about. But it somewhat jives with Google Trends data as well. So search queries for the Apple Watch have been trending down steadily. And right now, there was an analyst, I think from Pacific Crest, who actually noted that search queries for the iPod are right now higher than the Apple Watch. Wow. That's a very indirect way of trying to figure out how many watches uh, are Well, sold, not necessarily, because the iPod is still, uh, from I think from Q4, Q4, iPod sales volumes are not going to be announced as well. Okay. So do you think that there's still a market for watches now? I still don't know. I, I definitely agree that there is, a, there is a market for a new Apple product. Whether there's a sustained market for smartwatches, I still don't know. And maybe we'll know a little bit more when the watch is launched for uh, in retail stores. Because as of now, it's still been mostly online orders. You can go try on the, the watch, but you can't buy it in the store. So I think this month is when retail sales actually start. Maybe that will have... Uh, I think that that has changed, actually. So yeah. I was actually given some hints that actually the, the, the Apple is fulfilling their orders faster. So actually, uh-huh. when I ordered from the US, within nine days, I got my watch. No, I mean, but you can't walk into a retail store and, and buy it right That's there right. Right, at the price. That's right, but, but if you were to buy online, you actually can get it pretty fast. It's even faster than what it was originally estimated. In fact, originally it was estimated for almost a month or a month and a half. When you look at consumer mindset, right? Sometimes it's, consumers are more likely to buy when they see a product and they can buy it right there. They That's get right. a bit of instant gratification. So may, I'm, I'm thinking maybe that could have a little bit of an impact. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the data for next month mm. to see if there's been a meaningful improvement. Because I think that's going to be a pretty big indicator for us, right? Yep. No, no, no. I think, I think it's, the jury is still open. I'm still also not sure when can we say that there is a smartwatch market by then. But I kind of think that... So overall, what, what are your thoughts on WWDC then? I mean, is it positive or do you think that it's foreshadowed some new products? I know they didn't announce the TV SDK. It's really hard to read in the TV SDK and that's one thing I'm actually looking forward to. I think that that could be very interesting. This particular WWDC, I think, was more about iteration except for iPad multitasking was technically technically iteration, but I guess it's a larger iteration than, than the other products. But I think broadly, Apple's at steady state right now. The one thing we need to look forward to is what the, what watch sales are going to look like. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where nobody has an answer right now. Yes, and I think the new next generation iPhone is going to come in the fall, right? Yeah, sure. September as usual. <laughs> mm, so we will look forward to that. So just before I close this conversation, I saw I wanted to sort of talk to you a little bit about technology. I mean, while, you know, it's great to talk about Google I.O. and Apple WDC, we have uh, recently SoftBank finally launches their robot. I think it's about 1699 US dollars called Pepper. It actually runs on a tablet, actually. And this time is a little bit interesting because, I mean, you know, remember we had this conversation about Japanese companies unable to, you know, take their products out of the market. This time they partnered with Foxconn and Alibaba. So they got both the Foxconn CEO and also Alibaba's current chairman, not CEO, to actually came to open, to have investment into this SoftBank robot called Pepper. So do you think that that will change? I think it's astounding that you can buy a robot for the same price that you can get a smartphone for. I mean, that 
it really shows what era of tech we're entering into. Very, very exciting. But do you think that there is a chance for Asia to leapfrog in this kind of tech? Uh, definitely is. I mean, in smartphones, we saw Japan initially take a lead. But right now, if you have the kind of backing that you do from Foxconn and Alibaba, and SoftBank already seems to have a, appears to have a head start. And once this product hits the market, you're also going to get an understanding of how con- consumers use the product. And I think Asia is going to have a massive head start here. I, I think Asia has a, has a shot to really own this market. There, There is actually another market that's quite similar. I forgot to kind of point it out. It's the drones market. You heard of DJI, which is now based in Shenzhen. They are the kind of the billion dollar company. It's actually a Hong Kong company. And they're leading oh. in the drones uh, development. And I actually didn't appreciate this, but a lot of uh, consumer drone development, uh, DJI uh-huh. is actually producing the kind of like the kind of the processor within the drone itself. And the processing speed is actually moving much faster than what I've seen in the US markets. This is really, really interesting to me because I think that kind of mechanization is still not really, I'm not sure if American companies, uh, American startups at least, mm have those kind of kinds of investments to leverage that because for something like pepper and for consumer drones at least for pepper you're going to need miniaturized hydraulics and, and other kind of tech to use i mean a, a u.s startup would have to buy into that whereas asian startups already own that tech correct to be fair because i think softbank have a leap start because Japanese robotics have been actually been around for the longest time. I mean, Google did go to Japan and buy some robotics company. I don't know whether they bought the better ones or they just bought it for the sake of buying it, basically. Well, Google's also been... I mean, they bought Boston Dynamics, which was also interesting. Mm. Uh, But I'm not sure if those robots are ready to hit consumers yet. And, and, And I can't say this enough. Getting a product out into consumer hands and the kind of information you collect there is, I mean, you can't, you can't buy that. I mean, someone would have to buy SoftBank to, to really gain access to that, right? And not to mention that SoftBank also own, I think, three quarters of the taxi apps and e- e-commerce companies that look like Alibaba in the emerging markets. Well, then distribution's not a problem. <laughs> oh, okay. So we don't have a distribution problem. But yeah. that is a very good segue to the last part I actually want to talk to you about. The bubble question the question on everyone's mind right now it seems to be on everyone's mind i mean actually let's let's start off by talking a little bit in terms of numbers i mean we will um i think benedict evans recently released this very interesting report about u.s tech funding from the 1980s to now and he basically did i think one the most convincing data point to me was the one that the funding in each stage as compared to 1999 and 2000, yeah. is actually on average distributed. Whereas in the 1999-2000, there was a very skewed, I think 30 to 50% were all in Series A before uh-huh. the whole bubble collapsed. I mean, that was probably the one that convinces me that there was not a bubble. And of course, in the late stage, is the issue about whether that, you know, most of these companies that are funding the unicorns are actually building their own portfolios. It's kind of like yeah. confirmation bias kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. what are your thoughts on the bubble then? So to me, I think the, that's, that's the pro, right? I think the con is that companies are holding out to go public, right? And what's happening is because of that, you need to have larger and larger late stage rounds. And because of that, public investors, people who, technically, who usually invest in publicly traded stocks, 
are coming into the private markets and investing into these companies when they really don't have much expertise in evaluating private companies. And I think that's that's a concern to me. And I think that's part of the reason why valuations for late-stage companies are spiking up so much, why there are so many unicorns. It's because public investors are basically chasing returns and that's driving up valuation. So here lies the problem. So, I mean, in the some early 1990s to 2000s, we have what is called the Asian Tigers uh, situation, where it's basically an investment into emerging markets. So uh-huh. a lot of people put money into building up infrastructure in all these markets. Uh-huh. And subsequently, I think sometime around 1997, there was a kind of Asian crisis that actually bubbled because of the collapse of one of the currencies, I think was the Indonesia currency. Uh-huh. And then it trickled down to the all the Asian economies. And I mean, investing in a lot of these tech companies can also do the same, right? I mean... I mean, your home country, India, you have things like Flipkart, you have housing, you have Snapdeal. Do you think that actually, that even though the investment thesis of investing in unicorns makes sense, but actually because of the infrastructure of these countries are not ready, but you suddenly pour in so much investment, do you think that I, when the investors suddenly realize, oh, actually it's not as fast as what we wanted, then it gets into a problem? I think that's a very good point. I'll, I'll give you the example of Indian e-commerce punk, uh, companies specifically. So what's happened in Indian e-commerce is the the story they're trying to sell is that they're like Amazon. We're not profitable now, but at some point we will be profitable because we're really large. Mm. That doesn't make sense to me because Amazon makes money on a per transaction basis. Flipkart and, and no e-commerce company in India as far as uh, as per my knowledge makes money on, an e- uh, on a per transaction basis. This is because of two reasons. One, there are a lot of e-commerce companies in India that are fighting for the same consumers. The argument goes, there are so many consumers in India, the market is large enough to house all these e-commerce companies. But the problem is, not all consumers in India are accessible. So there's, you've got a billion users there, but a certain subsection of them are connected to the internet. An even smaller portion have access to credit cards and are comfortable making purchases online. So what's happened is, all of these e-commerce companies are going after that same set of customers, which is driving up cost of customer acquisition to insanely high levels so for example i'll give you one data point i vaguely know of. i heard that flipkart's cost of customer acquisition is roughly 2000 indian rupees and their average transaction value itself is far far lower than that which means the margin they make on that transaction is anyway is anyway negative so the, those economics make no sense right and the one asset that flipkart in particular does have is their distribution network across India. But I'm not sure, and they've already spun off that company to roll out to allow other e-commerce companies to have access to that distribution network. But I'm not entirely sure if that's going to be enough to live up to their valuation. So do you see a situation where all they will get an e-commerce bubble crash? Yes, I think. Because I, I'm, I'm hearing the same problem with Indonesia, with e-commerce companies as well. So... I, I don't know how much is 2,000 rupees in terms of US dollar conversion. Maybe you can help me a little bit here. It's, let's say, roughly $30, $40. $30, okay. So, Indonesia, your cost per acquisition per user is about 20 US dollars. Okay, that's and, pretty high. And the rocket internet people are actually uh, running on negative EBIT on these transactions. That makes Why? sense. I, I think Rocket has an e-commerce company in India as well. Um, Jabong, if I'm not wrong. Yes. If I'm not wrong. Correct. And I, I, they work on the same economics. Yes. So if you were to be a little bit more skeptical like myself, and I will look at the 
thing, I also discovered that, you know, when they talk about getting more users online to grow the market share, it turns out that from various sources that I know in Indonesia, a lot of people go, go online, they don't actually put in their credit card. They actually use the phone number on the website to call to register their account. Wow. So actually the cost of even signing up that phone call costs $8. Wow. So on right. top of that, you still need, you're not, you, you know what we, when we talk about internet economics is that it's scalable, right? Is that yeah. you and I can just go there, DIY, and then you key in your things on that. But it has gone to the level now that when I was in Indonesia, I was watching Lazada ads, which is owned by Rocket Internet, mm. on TV. In prime time, like 7 p.m. So I'm trying to work out whether there is economics. To put it, Coming back to this bubble question. So my problem is not that there is no investment. It's great that Asia is getting all these big investments. Yep. But the question for me is that, are we feeling another kind of bubble that's not like what the US is going through? I mean, the US is actually- yeah, It's a very different situation. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different situation here. You're, you're putting the same amount of money, but you're, I don't know where you're investing into at the moment. You're yeah. investing into where the consumer is actually making, getting a lot more value, or are you investing in building companies? That's, that's my question at the moment. I think it's more of that. And I'll give you an example of, of why I think this kind of captures exactly what the, what the issue is. I think last year, Flipkart acquired one of the largest clothing, re, uh, clothing e-commerce retailers in India called Mintra. And both companies had the same investors. So broadly, it was uh, the investors couldn't exit bo- uh, both their investments. So they figured out, let's, in, let's exit one. Let's create the exit for one. Yeah, because you have to keep funding Flipkart anyway because they need, they need the money. You might as well exit the other one. But how long more do you think this funding is going to go? I mean, the valuations have already hit multiple billion. I think what's going to happen is, I, I think broadly, the the climate the climate is global. right? Mm. So you see a lot of companies coming up in the US, Indian investors figure, you know what, they should be companies here as well, we should invest in them. I think it's all going to pop together. When I say pop, I, I don't mean every single company is going to go down. I mean, the, the biggest difference between the current, maybe asset inflation, maybe not entirely bubble, mm. versus what happened in 2000 was that there are genuine business models here. Yep. It's not that there is no business model. It's not, you're not just uh, investing in companies based off of eyeballs. Mm. There are business models, but the valuations and in, in at least a few cases have run way past what those business models can offer. And not all unicorns are equal. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, right? I mean, I, there, there will be one or two that, that are real unicorns, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what a, what a VC needs, right? For a VC, they need one investment to pay off really big, and they and that can pay pay and essentially make more than make up for all the other losses you've had, and that's that's what a VC investment strategy is. That's what it's supposed to be, and we need to realize. So, so the investments on getting these high level valuations, they are actually a normal activity, but the problem Correct, is yeah. that because the numbers are so big now that you know that there's going to be dead unicorns, so you feel that there's a bubble building up. And the two problems are, A, the numbers are really big, and two, that's, a, that's attracting public investors. And to me, that is the biggest concern, because investors into those public companies, I mean, a public investor doesn't really have a portfolio of unicorns, right? They, mm. They're probably investing in a handful of them. And second, the investors into those mutual funds or, or hedge funds or, or whatever it may be, I mean, maybe not hedge funds, just mutual funds or pension funds. They didn't sign up for that kind of risk. Right. So they will end up getting into the wrong wrong risk, basically, for yeah. different I risk mean, factors. I mean, like, like, like we talk about it from India and Indonesia, and we're talk- we talking from the Asia perspective, right? You, yeah. you think about it, we looked at the bubble very differently from what the US people are looking at their t- bubble as well. The concern for me here is, I mean, regulations in Asia are 
are different. So I'm not sure it's going to be as easy for public investors to jump into this. But you still have to wonder at some point, are, is there going to be lobbying to, if, if this doesn't change so, soon, is there going to be lobbying to change those regulations? That to me is, is, is the biggest fear. So where do you think this is going to go? Uh, I don't think it's going to last for much longer. Maybe a year or two. Yeah, I'm giving it, actually I give it about 18 months from January. So, you know, I'm, and actually I have a crazy theory as well. Oh, I'd like to hear that. Oh, I think it's going to start from Rocket Internet. That's not a crazy theory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you know, like every every crash comes with something that catalyzes that reaction, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to start from Rocket Internet. And it makes makes sense because in Asia specifically, e-commerce is kind of leading that charge, right? Yeah. And Rocket Internet's business model is to basically replicate e-commerce ventures in each country. Yeah. So there's a there's a logical choice. Yeah. So I, I I'm just wondering when that is happening because I'm looking at their stock price at the moment in Germany is going down, 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 down. So I'm just waiting. Yeah. <laughs> that that's that's very interesting to me because you've got. It's just strange to me that a company like Rocket Internet and Blackstone is publicly traded. I mean, that's basically giving public investors a chance to invest in, it's equivalent to letting them invest in a VC fund. Yes. Or a PE fund, right? That's right. And what I think public investors do not know is that this particular VC PE fund is going to take you a lot more money to get to where it is going to be than the next one one or two years. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's probably before we round up. So Samir, where do we find you then? You can follow me on Twitter at Samir underscore Singh 17 or you can follow my blog tech-thoughts.net. Yes, I think you have recently written a couple of very interesting articles. I'm going to put a links on all of them actually. All right. Okay. And you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com or at analyzeasia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia or analyze.asia. Um, you can also subscribe to us in iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud. And of course, leave us a rating, one star to five star. And it would probably be great to also send us questions and tell us what you, who you want to talk to in Asia. So Samir, once again, thanks. Thanks, Bernard.